Good morning. That was a sleepy good morning. Good morning. Yeah, okay. Are right, you awake now? All right, good. At least for a little while. Uh, so, uh, welcome. Yeah, the kids are already, you know what happens. Yeah, off they go. There you go. Yeah, so you can go. Thank you, Ella Cade, for at least waiting a little bit, waiting for me to say something. The rest of the kids, you know, sort of like my house, they just sort of do things and don't even ask their parents. So, uh, welcome. Uh, if you're visiting here, so glad that you're here. My name's Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration Church, and uh, it's my pleasure to to serve you this meal of God's Word. Uh, We've been taking the month of December, what we call the Advent season, to consider the coming of Christ. Jesus came once. He promises He will come again. And uh, there was a prophecy. There's many prophecies about the coming of Christ in the first time. One of those prophecies we've been looking at is from Isaiah chapter 9, Verse 6, we've been meditating on that passage throughout this whole month, this whole season of Advent. And in that passage, we see that, a, you're gonna, I'll read it in a moment, there's a child that's going to come. And this child that's going to come has at least four names. And we've taken each week of this uh, season of Advent to consider those names. So two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus being the wonderful counselor. We thought about the fact that he is a king that is coming, that is full of wonderful counsel. He's got counsel that is full of wonder. Uh, as is evidence at his coming and uh, born of a virgin in a stable, uh, revered by shepherds and eventually gone to die on a cursed cross only to be raised on the third day to be revealed for who he actually is. Wonderful counselor. And then last week we thought about the fact that Jesus is mighty God, uh, namely that he is uh, able to make clean those that are not clean. And he's able to forgive those uh, who need uh, sins forgiven, which is all of us, right? And then this week we come to what is probably the most confusing of the four names. Next week we'll look at Jesus as the Prince of Peace. This week we look at that name, Everlasting Father. Maybe for those of you that are a little bit familiar with the Christian faith, this is is the most perplexing of those four names given to Jesus. So hopefully we're going to explain that. Uh, You heard uh, Joey mention it a while ago. We're going to do that from John chapter 6. So we'll get there in a little bit. We... uh, I. I constructed this little thing here today, so this will help you uh, as we go through here. So you can take this home today. This should have, you should have received these on your way in. kind of walks us through uh, the passage in John 6 and what Jesus is teaching about himself as the author of everlasting life. I noted, by the way, when I looked down there, I said, that does not look right. And it's my fault. So it's, I'm the one that typed this up. So when it says who gives eternal life, that third question from the bottom, and it says the Spirit, 623, should be 63. So just so you know. So you're going to read that and be like, what? What is that? 23? What does that have to do with the Spirit? Well, change it to 63. There you go. Let me pray for us. Uh, and then we're going to dive into Jesus' everlasting Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that you've revealed yourself to us in that word. Uh, we have so many things that are distracting us even in this moment. I pray, God, you'd make us attentive to this teaching, maybe the most important of realities. So God, slow us down and help us to listen. May we not be like those disciples that upon listening, upon hearing, walked away. But may we be like those disciples that stayed, knowing that Jesus has the words of eternal life. Help us towards that end, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, So one of the reasons I gave you that little Uh, handout is because I'm not going to give you a nice little clear outline. So uh, what I'm going to give you is just one phrase that will sort of encapsulate in your mind 
everything that we're saying today. And here's that phrase. It's pretty simple. Jesus is the author of everlasting life to sinners. Jesus is the author of everlasting life to sinners. You understand that statement? You get the whole sermon. Uh, Interesting that it'll take me 40, 45 minutes to unpack that. But nevertheless, Jesus is the author of everlasting life to sinners. So again, we're thinking about this title, Everlasting Father. And let me set the context for us again by reading that passage. Isaiah 9, 6 says this. Remember, this is written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. We should ask the question, what will he be like? Well, the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. On the throne of of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So we see this child that is born, the son that is given, is bringing a government. He's going to be a king that sits on a throne, the throne of David. We know this to be Jesus. uh, And we know this also, the kingdom that he's bringing is the consistently referenced kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks so frequently about. But what does that have to do with Jesus as everlasting father? Well, let's start by saying what it doesn't mean, what everlasting father doesn't mean. The reference to father... Uh, has nothing to do with Jesus being the heavenly father. has nothing to do with Jesus being the heavenly father. It's the historic Christian position to understand the Trinity, to believe the Trinity, what we call the Trinity, one word that encapsulates the teaching of the Bible, that God is one God. We don't worship three gods or ten or twenty. We worship one God uh, as revealed in the three persons, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so in that Each person of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, they're all fully God. Uh, But each of them is also not the other one. So the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Son, and the Spirit is not the Son, etc. And so here we have a passage uh, referencing Jesus and Everlasting Father that sounds like Jesus is the Heavenly Father, which would break down our teaching of the Trinity. But again, that's not what this is teaching And one of the ways we know that it's not teaching is because there's no other reference in the entire Bible that seems to refer to Jesus as a father. So uh, we know right off the bat then that this does not mean that Jesus is the father or the heavenly father. He's still the son. But we still haven't answered what it means. So let's go to that. So that's what it doesn't mean. What does it mean? Well, if you read the name backwards, everlasting father backwards, I think you can begin to get a better grasp of what it means. Jesus is the father everlasting or the father of the everlasting father here is meant to communicate author i have two sons one of whom's name is judah so i might say i fathered my son judah right that's sort of the notion that's being taught here so jesus is the father or the author of the everlasting and then when we add to whom the king is given to whom the child born to us When we add to whom the king is given, we can round out what it means. He is given to us. He is given to sinners. He's given to sinners. So Jesus then, pulling it all together, Jesus is the father or the author of the everlasting life to sinners. So in other words, everlasting father there means that this king is going to be the father, the author of everlasting life for sinners. He's going to be the author of everlasting life to those that believe. The child that is born is going to be a king who gives, who grants eternal life. 
And he's the one that's going to purchase it. Jesus is the author of everlasting life to sinners. That's what everlasting father means. But let's now do what we've been doing throughout this series. Let's now take that notion and see Jesus in action, teaching it. All right, that's what we're going to do now. That's where we get to John 6. So John chapter 6, we're going to see Jesus as the author of everlasting life to sinners. Right here in action, John chapter 6. So let me set the context for us there. In John 6, we get the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 men there in the first 15 verses. John 1, 6, 1 to 15, Jesus feeding 5,000 men with five loaves and two fish. So remember, that's kind of an important piece of the story. Jesus then catches up to the disciples who had left him by walking on water. That's verses 16 to 21. Then in verse 22, we see those same folks that were fed by Jesus the day before. They go looking for Jesus. And they find him in Capernaum teaching in a synagogue. So that's where we pick up our passage. John chapter 6, verse 25. Look there, I'm going to read that. When they found him, remember this is a group of folks that uh, were just fed by Jesus with a, uh, five bread, pieces of bread and two fish. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves, of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. When they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, all right, here's the situation. These guys show up after having just been fed. They're looking out for him. Gave us a good meal yesterday. Maybe he'll give us a good meal today. All right, they go find him teaching in a synagogue. They sit there in the sort of church service, listening to him teach. They start having this kind of give and take. And Jesus understands exactly what these guys are doing. These guys are not interested in having their souls filled. These guys are interested in having their bellies filled, right? They're like, man, he gave us some food yesterday. Maybe he can go and he'll give us some food today. That's why they're seeing that. And Jesus calls it out. He understands that's what they're doing. And he tries to point them out to the most important thing that they're missing. He wants them to understand you guys are looking for temporal food. You need the kind of food that goes on to eternal life. And we saw there the people respond like, that's great. Okay, what do we need to do to get that kind of bread? And Jesus says, well, listen, your work is to believe in the one who is sent by the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, you need to trust me. Do that, believe me, and you will have food that results in eternal life. Well, unsatisfied by the answer, the crowds are like, that's great. Right? This is sort of now going on in the passage. The crowd like, sounds good. But listen, we need you to give us a sign, Jesus. Uh, give us a sign that kind of confirms this teaching that you're giving us. Because, you know, back in the day, our forefathers, they had this whole thing, you know, when they were coming out of Egypt and they had this miraculous manna that would come down from heaven. They woke up and got it every day. So maybe you could do something like that, Jesus. Now, that, the whole fact that they're asking him that just uh, stuns me because, like, just yesterday, these same people saw him feed 5,000 men with a couple Happy Meals, you know, and yet they still want some more signs. We're all like them, guys. Guys, don't laugh too hard at them because we're a lot like them. Well, Jesus, he imbibes them. He is willing to sort of go along with him. He entertains him, and in verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, The Father has sent bread from heaven that gives life to the world. Verse 34, they say, great, we'll take it. Where is it at? 
And that gives the context of verse 35. So look at verse 35. Well, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not yet do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So Jesus says here in essence, listen, you guys hungry? I'm the bread. I'm the answer to your hungers. You thirsty? I'm the one that quenches your thirst. You feast upon me, you drink of me, you'll never hunger or thirst. In other words, he's saying, I am the true and forever manna from heaven. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking at a spiritual level, not a, not a physical level. He knows that they're not interested in him, even though they're sitting there in a synagogue. He knows they're not ultimately interested in this teaching. This, guys, is the equivalent of a church service where people are here, sort of like you, like us, sitting here in this church service, and they have a little bit of interest in Jesus and what he can do for them. But Jesus knows they don't really want, they don't really want what he's offering them. They're interested, but they're interested for the wrong reasons. They show up to church, as it were, but they're showing up to church at the synagogue for themselves. And Jesus knows it. So then he says, the real ones who have their hunger and their thirst satisfied in me are the ones, verse 37, that the Father gives to him. Whoever that is, whoever it is that the Father gives to him, whoever the Father gives to the Son by believing, Jesus, he says, will never get rid of them. He'll never get rid of them. He that is from forever will keep them for forever. Verse 39, he says, I lose nothing. All that the Father has given me will be raised up on the last day. You hear that refrain throughout this whole passage. They make it to the end. The ones that the Father gives to me believe in me. And once they come to me, they have eternal life because I'm going to keep them all the way to the end. All right, now we're going to draw some conclusions on that in a bit. But let's keep pressing, kind of go through the rest of this passage. Look at verse 41, 41 to 43. The crowd responds to that teaching with disbelief. They don't believe it. They look at it and they say, come on, man, this is Mary and Joseph's boy. I mean, serious. You remember that time he did this and, you know, this other thing like he's down there making cabinets for us. Come on, man. This, this guy can't be the bread sent from heaven. This is just Mary and Joseph's little boy. So these guys are clearly looking at Jesus with earthly eyes. They've not been given eyes from the father to see Jesus for who he actually is. Verse 44, Jesus then says to them again, second time we've heard language like this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father has to draw them. And I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 47, drop down there a little bit. Whoever believes has eternal life. Verse 51, drop down a few more verses. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. 
Then down a couple more verses, verses 53 and 54. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus here is emphasizing the need to be drawn by the Father to the Son in order to believe in him for eternal life. Well, how's the crowd going to respond? How does this kind of church crowd respond? How will these people that are interested in Jesus and what he can do for them, how are they going to respond? Look at verse 60. Well, they acknowledge that it's a hard teaching. They acknowledge it's hard to follow this Jesus. Now, guys, I don't think that they're only referencing the strangeness of eating the body and blood of Christ. Surely that's a little odd to hear. I don't think that's only what that means when it says that it's hard. I think these guys understand that Jesus is calling them to abandon the whole of their desires and believe in him alone to satisfy. And they get that that's hard to do. So then again, in verse 64 to 65, Jesus says, listen, they can't come. This is the third time we've seen this. They can't come. They can't believe in him unless it's granted, gifted, graced to them by the Father. And then we get this verse in verse 66. After many of the... after. After this, many of his disciples, this is not the twelve, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So that's how they responded. They walked away. Too hard. Don't want to do that. So guys, I want you to feel the gravity of this moment here. The crowds are following Jesus. They've seen Jesus do miracles. These are religious people. They show up. They listen to his teaching. They even do a little give and take. Right? They've even saw him do this miracle. So, by the way, you should be reminded, like if I, for those that say, if I could just see Jesus, then I'd believe in him. If I could see him do miracles, then I'd believe in him. Well, people saw that and still didn't. Right? These guys have seen all this stuff. And these are, these are religious people. Crowds are following this. People are interested in Jesus. So if Jesus were trying to market Christianity, this would be his moment. Right? He's got tons of crowds. They've seen him do amazing things. They're asking him questions. He could market Christianity really good. At this moment, Jesus is beginning to go viral, right? That's what's happening. Now's his time. Now's when Jesus can get his shoe deal, right? And his TV deal and his movie deal. This is the time when he can get really famous, spread his fame around the world. Christianity can grow. But Jesus knows these guys don't believe. Jesus knows they are only interested in what Jesus can do for them. They don't want to find satisfaction in Jesus. They want to use Jesus to get what they really want. They want temporal satisfactions. Jesus is offering them eternal satisfaction. And they don't want it. They want the temporary more than the eternal. So to to them, Jesus is nothing more than a kind of lucky charm. Their bellies, their desires are their gods. So they want to use Jesus. They don't want to worship Jesus, find satisfaction in Jesus, follow Jesus. They want to use him. And Jesus won't let you treat him that way. And so he intentionally says things. He intentionally says things that exposes their unbelief so that there can be a visible representation of their unbelieving hearts. Because as it were before then, they were known to be, quote, disciples. Isn't that what it said? Jesus is saying things so as to expose their unbelieving heart. Not exactly the stuff of church growth gurus, is this? Right? Nowadays, let's try to get as many people in here. We'll do, 
plane drops and helicopter drops, cool shows, kids smoke machines, whatever. You know, but Jesus is like, no, I'm going to say some stuff to make it small. Right? This makes no sense to the modern mind. I mean, if I'm there, even, I don't think I would be like, no, no, don't, don't say that, Jesus. No, just make it a little easier for him. Keep him around a little while. But Jesus isn't interested in being popular. Jesus is interested in being faithful. This is the way of the kingdom of heaven. It is not appealing to the masses. Jesus Christ is not a product to be marketed to satisfy the fleeting desires of humanity. He is not just one product of the shelf on the shelf of other religious goods and services there to be used however and whenever you want to please your own individual desires. Jesus is the Lord. And He is the author of everlasting life. Either you believe Him, trust Him for everything, or you walk away from Him. There is no in-between. There is no third way. And that's what we're seeing here in this passage. Well, as the crowds are streaming out of the back doors of the kind of mega church there with hundreds of people following him and he's saying stuff. I mean, there's a faithful pastor I like to listen to from time to time and he has these uh, sermons. I remember he says, like, here's a pew-clearing sermon. That's what this is going to be, a pew-clearing sermon. So he's going to say things are going to be hard. A lot of people aren't going to like it. They'll leave. Well, Jesus did a kind of pew-clearing sermon here. They're streaming out the back doors, as it were, of the synagogue. And Jesus turns to his 12 disciples. And he asks them that penetrating question in verse 67. You going to leave me too? I love this answer. Simon Peter got a lot wrong, but he got this one right. You know? I love how he notes him as the Lord. Simon Peter, Jesus, just Matt, I'm sure that had to be hard for Jesus to see these people streaming away from him. And he looks at those disciples, maybe sitting next to him, and he says, you're going to leave me too? And Simon Peter looks back to him and says, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. They get it, right? Well, what do we learn from all of this? This passage here in John 6. What's the point? And what does this have to do with Jesus as everlasting Father? Well, the clear emphasis of this passage is how Jesus offers eternal life or everlasting life, right? That's clear. This is the everlasting portion. This is teaching the everlasting portion of the everlasting Father that is Jesus the Christ. He is the only one that is able to offer us everlasting life. So you can see Jesus' emphasis on eternal life in at least eight verses of this passage. At least eight. I think it's more than that, but it's at least eight. I'll give you one of them again. Verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Not just says, uh, not just believe his ways, but believe him. Believe Jesus. The child that is born, the son that is given, is wonderful. Counselor, mighty God, author of everlasting life. Father of everlasting life to sinners. Guys, nobody makes this claim but Christ alone. Nobody. So Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, or any other religious figure you can think of makes this claim. Nobody does. 
They might say, those other religious teachers might say, listen, here's some cool stuff, good stuff, and maybe if you obey those things enough, you might get eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, believe me, and you get eternal life. Nobody else is saying this. Eat of me, he's saying. Drink of me, you live forever. No one is crazy enough to say that if you trust me, you have eternal life. He is a king that offers everlasting life in himself. Now we need to ask the next question then. Hopefully this question is beginning to come in your mind. Well, how can Jesus make that claim? How can he say that if you feast upon him, you will never hunger again and live forever? Hopefully that's a question maybe you're thinking about. Well, our answer to that question begins to get into the father piece of everlasting father. We've seen Jesus alone offers the everlasting eternal life. That explains why he would be called everlasting. But how can he make this claim? Well, here's our answer. Because he claimed to defeat death himself. That's how. And if Jesus could defeat death, he then could be the author of life. The father of everlasting life to sinners. If Jesus can defeat death himself and make a sacrifice for sin, then he then can offer everlasting life to those that believe. So is that idea here in John 6? Yes, it is. Take a look at verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, that's Jesus, he will live forever. There's the everlasting part. And here comes the father piece. You ready for it? And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There it is. Jesus is the living bread where if you eat of him, you live forever. And the way the bread will give you everlasting life is by the bread, Jesus, giving his life for the world, his flesh for sinners. The Bible teaches us that the wages or the payment of sin is death. That's the result. You sin, the payment then to defeat sin is death, or that's the payment for sin. So for us to be fathered into everlasting life, Jesus has to make that payment. He's got to pay that wage if he's going to offer eternal life. And this is what Jesus does at the cross. This is what he does at the cross. Just as he says in verse 51, Jesus gives his life by laying down his flesh, by dying himself. But how do we know the payment was received? How do we know that the check clears and is able then to offer everlasting life? Well, that's an easy one, right? He rose from the grave. Three days later, Jesus rises from the grave and that resurrection illustrates to us that the wage was paid for those that believe. And so now that for all those that trust Jesus' payment, they can be granted the bread of eternal life. But it is only possible by trusting in him, believing in him, because he is the only one that promises eternal life in himself. Because he's the only one that is able to pay the wage of sin, which is death. And then defeated in the resurrection. Therefore making him the father of everlasting life to sinners that believe. Everlasting father. Jesus is the author of everlasting life to sinners because he alone paid the wage of our sins on the cross by dying and raising up three days later, defeating sin and death, thereby fathering or authoring everlasting life to anyone that believes on him. The child that is born, the son that is given is wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, author to all those that believe. 
Well, let's end our time together by applying this amazing truth to our lives. What does this look like? What does this mean for us? Well, let me do this first by addressing you that are not trusting in Christ for everlasting life. Speak to you first. For you that are not believing in Christ's sacrifice for everlasting life. Or to you who say that you believe Jesus, but, to, but refuse to follow him as Lord. In other words, you kind of want to hang on to some things and let him be Lord of other things. I want you to notice in this passage that there are a lot of people that were interested in Jesus. They are even referred to as disciples. Disciples means learner. They're even referred to as learners of Christ. These guys follow Jesus around. They're learning from Jesus. They even show up to church, as it were. I'm sure they would have told you that they were disciples of Christ. I'm sure that even, they would have even told you that they really liked Jesus or even loved Jesus. But the reality is they never actually believed Jesus. How is it I know that? Well, first off, because Jesus said so. That's easy to see. But second... How is it I know that these guys, even though they took the name of disciple and followed him around and kind of went to synagogue, went to church, how is it I know they never actually really believed? Because when things got hard, they walked away. Look at verse 60 again. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? So in this area, they didn't want to listen to Jesus. They didn't want to listen to his teaching. They're interested in listening to other aspects of Jesus' teaching. But as it relates to this piece, they didn't want to follow it. There were other things that were more important to them. They wanted to listen to their own hungers, their own appetites, their own desires as it relates to these things. They were happy to follow Jesus when they got something out of it. But they wanted no part of Jesus when it meant that things were going to be hard, when they had to give up things that maybe they hungered for. And of course, guys, this is exactly what Jesus teaches in other places. Wide is the gate and easy is the way, Jesus says, that leads to destruction. And most will enter it. Narrow is the way and hard, narrow is the way and hard is the way that leads to everlasting life. And few will enter it, Jesus says. Jesus even goes by later in another portion. Uh, he tells a parable uh, in Matthew, Mark and Luke. The parable of the soils. Maybe you've heard of this. There's four kinds of soils, sort of, kind of four kinds of people, as it were, where the seed of the gospel falls on different types of soils. The first one's easy. Those that uh, hear the gospel and just refuse, they never believe. That's the first kind that he talks about. And then the last kind that he talks about, the seed of the gospel falls on their ears and they believe and they endure with fruit all the way to the end, 20, 30, 60, 100 fold, all the way out. So it's evident that there that the seed of the soil had fallen on their hearts and truly was real. But then there's two middle kind of soils that Jesus teaches. And both of those soils have something has one to do one, uh, one or two things. Either one, they like the world too much and they too they were not willing to follow him, to actually believe him, though they said they believed. And the other kind of uh, soil that Jesus says is they say they believe, uh, but uh, this world is too hard. Or something happens and they walk away. They stop walking after Jesus. So friend, if you are unwilling to follow Jesus when it is hard, when you are, then you are those, you are in that camp of those that are walking away from Jesus in verse 66. And I'm here to tell you, as one of Jesus' ambassadors, turn around. Come back. Don't walk away from Him. I understand His commands are hard and life following Jesus is hard. I understand it, but don't, don't walk away. Come back. 
Follow Him. Trust Him. Don't turn away. Don't follow the easy road that leads to destruction. Follow the hard road that leads to everlasting life. Whatever desire you have uh, to want to, uh, you maybe not want to bring under submission to Christ, God, turn away from that and stop walking towards the lie that somehow that thing is better than the Lordship of Christ. It's not. It's not better. Proverbs 20, verse 17 says that bread gained by deceit is sweet to man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. So that lie that you are believing is greater than Christ, or at least you're unwilling to bring it under the lordship of Christ. It may taste sweet now, but eventually it's going to taste like gravel in the end. Don't walk away from Jesus. Trust him for eternal life, and he'll give it to you. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. See, Jesus is the only one that can eternally satisfy your deepest desires. He atoned for sin. His resurrection offers you new life. Turn around from walking away and come to Him and delight in Him. Find satisfaction in Him for everlasting life. And if you want to do that, just come talk to me, talk to somebody else, tell somebody. I want to do this. It's going to be hard, but I want to walk that hard road to everlasting life. I'm tired of walking the easy road that leads to destruction. I want Jesus. I want to eat of Him forever. Tell somebody. But secondly, for those of you that do believe, you did not turn away. You are embracing the hard teaching of Jesus, submitting your life to his lordship, believing in him for everlasting life. Three brief things, three applications from this passage. First, I want to remind you of the grace of God in your salvation. I want to remind you of the grace of God in your everlasting life. You did nothing to earn your eternal life and everything to despise it. Look down there again at verse 65. Remember, this is the third time Jesus says something like this in his th- sermon. If I said something like this time and time again, you'd be like, Nathan, I got it. Like He's saying it again. Look at verse 65. No one can come to me unless it is granted. The word there is gifted by the Father. And so, Christian, God the Father looked down on you from eternity and he chose you by his infinite grace and gave you eternal life in his Son. He granted it to you. Wonder of wonders. Can you believe that? He gave it to you. And you didn't do anything to deserve it. And everything did despise it. And so on Christmas morning when you wake up, I don't know if those of you that open Christmas presents on Christmas Eve, I don't know, maybe you don't open any presents at all, it's fine too. But if you do open up on Christmas morning and you see those gifts and you get excited about opening those gifts, listen, never, never, Christian, never lose sight that the greatest gift given to you was Christ. That's your best, best gift Never lose sight of that. And you got that gift by the grace of God. By the grace of God. God granted it, gifted it to you. Never lose sight of eternal life in the Son that was grace given to you. That's the first thing we can do to apply Jesus as everlasting Father. That that everlasting life was given to us by God's grace. Second thing, if Jesus is the everlasting Father, then trust Him to to satisfy your deepest desires. If Jesus is the Christ, the Father of your everlasting life. Trust Him to satisfy your deepest desires, your deepest thirsts. Again, verse 35. Whoever comes to me, that's you, Christian. Whoever comes to you, tell me, shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me, that's you, Christian, shall never thirst. 
Now, by this, Jesus doesn't mean you'll never want to eat food again. We find Jesus eating food after this, right? It doesn't mean you won't have other hungers or thirsts. He's referencing the eternal. Jesus satisfies your deepest desires for everlasting life. Who here really wants to die and never live again? Jesus satisfies that deepest desire. See, most everything on planet Earth has an expiration date. Not just the milk and the fridge, right? Everything does. Most everything does. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy your deepest desire. So think about it. Your job does not have eternality reference to it. Right? doesn't. Those of you that are married, your marriage does not have eternal attached to it. You will not be married in heaven. Christ is the only one that can satisfy our longing for eternality and life therein. Day after day, moment after moment, remind yourself of this fact. That Jesus is the only thing that can satisfy you. Because reality is, guys, we forget this all the time, don't we? We forget that Jesus is the only thing that can ultimately satisfy us. See, I tell my wife, she's not in the room, so it won't be too embarrassing to her. I tell her two to three times a day that I love her. Send her a text message, tell her in the morning when I come home. I tell her I love her every day, two, three, four, five times. You want to know why? Because life gets in the way, and we forget. You know, two or three days go by, it's been hard, it's been difficult. I want her to know because she can forget and I can forget her love. And so we just keep telling each other that. You know, no matter what, we got each other. I love you. We forget. So we can't forget that Christ satisfies all of our deepest desires. Look to him. Trust him. And remind yourself the fact that he is the bread of life that causes you to never hunger or thirst. He's the one that can do it. Nothing else and no one else can. So keep reminding yourself that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Your job is not, your spouse is not, I'm not, you're not, he is. So when the whole world lets you down and seems to burden you more and more, remind yourself that Jesus is the bread of life that will cause you to never hunger again. Go to him to satisfy your deepest desires. Don't look to anyone or anything else to do that. So remember the grace of God in your eternal life. Two, look to Jesus to satisfy your deepest desires. And third, Christian, never forget that since Christ is your everlasting father, he will keep you to the end. He will keep you to the end. Look at verse 37 again. All, most, by the way, I read the Greek. Guess what it says? All. There you go. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will what? Never cast out. Drop down. Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose most of the stuff. Just look at the text, right? Always telling people, look at the text. That I should lose nothing. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up when? On the last day. Christian, Jesus saved you, he is saving you, and he will keep you to the end. To the very end. Believe him to keep you for eternal life. Don't trust yourself to be kept for eternal life. Trust him to to keep you for eternal life. Don't focus on your ability to keep faith. Focus on Christ's ability to keep you. Guys, when I fly in an airplane, I'm sure you've done this too. When I fly in an airplane, I am not trusting myself to get me to the destination. We would be a whole lot of trouble, right? (laughs) 
So don't trust anybody but Jesus to get you to your final destination. Trust him alone. Don't trust yourself. Trust him alone. You're going to fail a lot. You probably failed this morning. Jesus never fails. And guess what? He's got a pretty good track record at hanging on to people. I mean, you ever notice in the Bible, like every time Jesus makes these promises, they always kind of go out of their way. Oh, and by the way, he knows about that whole Judas thing. You know, just want to make it clear he doesn't lose anybody. Even though it looks like people may have been lost, he keeps everybody. Be encouraged by that. Rest in Christ's ability to keep you to the end. But some of you may ask that question, though. You may say, well, Nathan, what about that guy or that girl, that friend in my life that used to believe but now doesn't believe? What about that? Or what about that person that, you know, says they love Jesus, but they just walk in unrepentant sin? What about that? Sure looks like Jesus lost them. Well, first, to that question, we've got to take Christ's word here. He says he loses nothing. I'm going to trust Jesus' word on that. But two, look at verse 66 again. Note that word. Note the one, two. Note, note that word, disciples. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So in the same passage that Jesus says over and over and over again, I will raise them up on the last day and I will lose nothing and no one. We get a story of disciples no longer walking with Jesus. So this is here to show us that there are those that take the name of Christ, but when things get hard, they walk away. Same parable that Jesus told about those soils. It's exposing the reality of where their faith had always been in the wrong place. Again, I've already talked about this parable of the soils. It reveals that teaching to us. Life happens so as to reveal where their faith actually lies. And so we've got to remember that Christ will keep you. Jesus loses no one. Keep your faith in him. Trust in him. He loses no one. There's going to be all kinds of people that are going to take the name of disciple of Jesus, and when things get hard, they walk away. Jesus knows that. In the same passage, he's saying, I lose no one. Trust him to keep you to the end. Don't trust yourself. So just this last week, I had a member of our church come into my office, and the whole purpose of the meeting was to try to get them to, for me to try to encourage them. And what wind up happening is, is they wound up encouraging me. Uh, this person has just been, like a number of you that I've met with in my office, have had a hard 2017. I mean, it's just one thing. This just tears coming out of their eyes. Just recounting 2017. It's just been like this. Heavy, 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 heavy. Weeping, 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 weeping. And I take her to scriptures. I point her to a reminder of God's love for her. And even though these things are incredibly hard for this person, they wept all these tears. This person, I, I reminded them, God's good. I, I, said, look, like, I said to them, like, look, in the valley of the shadow of death, look up, sister, at the rod and the staff of Jesus and let that comfort you. And surely you will be in the house of the Lord forever and ever at one day. And she looked back at me and said, tears in her eyes, I know God's good. I know that God is good and I know that he loves me because he's been with me before and he's walked with me before and I'll get out of this. I'm going to trust him. She's still hurt. She's still having a hard year. But man, this girl's faith just encouraged me so much. This is what it looks like. How does that happen? But by the grace of God, working in this person's life to hold her, to hang on to her, 
all the way to the end. May it be with us. May we rest in His ability to hold us fast to the very end. To raise us up on the last day. We're going to sing here. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing a song. Love the songs called He Will Hold Me Fast. Now, so easy to sing songs and not pay attention to the words. Again, I said this last week. I think about this at Christmas season all the time. I mean, I'm sitting around in secular environments and they're think, singing about the joy of the Lord coming to the earth. To Anyway, just like, listen. So I want you to pay attention to the words of this song. It's difficult for me to sing this song and not weep because of the truth here. It's going to remind us of Jesus as everlasting Father. Listen to these words. I'm going to say them to you and then we're going to sing them. When I fear my faith will fail. Anybody there? Christ will hold me fast. On me. Christ. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. Amen? He, love, this, love these next four letters. He must hold me fast. And right here, he promises us that he will in this passage. Because he's the everlasting father. And he keeps us to the end. He is the one that is fathering our everlasting life. And he will keep us to the end and raise us up on the last day. He's worth it all. Don't turn away from him. Follow him through all of life's fearful paths and know that he will hold you to the end. Let's ask him for help. Heavenly Father, we pray to you and we just want to say thank you that you sent the eternal bread from heaven to us. We didn't deserve it. And you sent him. And Jesus, we thank you that by grace and for your glory, you've caused us to be born again to a new and living hope. I pray for those that are not yet believing or struggling to believe. God, grant them faith that they would believe. And may they be reminded of the grace of salvation. May they be reminded that Christ satisfies all of our deepest desires. And may they be reminded that Jesus, you will keep us to the very end. And God, maybe on that day, maybe even today this will happen, but whenever it is, may we gather together and remember this sermon, this text, that you held us true right to the end. Blessed be your name, Lord God. May we never turn away. And like those disciples, like Peter, may we say, we will not leave because you have the words of eternal life and we have nowhere else to go. We ask this in your powerful name, Everlasting Father. Amen.